The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. It's my privilege and my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Justin Holcomb, who will be speaking morning devotions today. Uh, Dr. Holcomb is an Episcopal minister and also teaches theology and apologetics, both at RTS in Orlando, as well as at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He taught previously places like the University of Virginia and Emory University, where he received his, his doctorate. Uh, we're delighted to have him here. Dr. Holcomb is here, not only to speak in chapel, but also during the lunch hour. If you have not signed up already, you can do so uh, right after chapel. Go over to the student lounge and sign up for the special lunch uh, forum that he and his wife, uh, Lindsay, will be holding to talk a little bit more about uh, their work. But he's also here this weekend uh, for the Valued Conference, sponsored by Resurrection Presbyterian Church in San Diego, as well as Redemption Church. Uh, it's being held in downtown San Diego at First Pres. It's a wonderful conference that uh, many churches are involved with. So I'd invite you to consider that uh, on the website. I believe that's found under valuedconference.com. Uh, so please enjoy. Please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Holcomb. Good morning. Good morning. There you go. Maybe the mic wasn't on. Uh, I do have my phone up here. I know we're going 20 minutes at the very most. I promise to have you out of here by 1025. Sound good? Deal? All right. Let me start. Thank you very much, Dr. Kim and uh, Dr. Horton. I see you back there. So it's fun to be here with friends and Adam and others. And uh, being on the the East Coast uh, and teaching at RTS, I know well about Westminster Seminary. And it's a joy to be here. Uh, feels like uh, very similar institutions with similar commitments and values. And so being here feels like being at home since I've been here a few times also in the past few years. And it's an honor to be able to be here at uh, chapel. I'm going to look at Luke 4. I'm going to read those two verses. And uh, you can follow along, but Luke 4 verses 1 and 2 and then skip down to 13. I'm going to save some time uh, just by reading those passages because I think you know the passage as well. But let me read them. It says, And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And then down to 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, we ask that you will send your Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds so we will see your Son for who he is and what he's done, and work that reality into our hearts and minds so that seed of the good news grows and bears much fruit for your glory. Amen. So what what happens in between the passages that we skipped was the threefold temptation. And it's familiar, and I wanted to be able to give you the framework for it so we can jump in. Now, If you're like me, some Bible passages from your previous uh, discipleship in churches might cause you to twitch a little bit. 
And this is one of those passages. Luke 4 was a passage that used to make me twitch out of nervousness because of the way it was used. You know how this passage is usually used. It's the obedience of Christ in the face of temptation. Typically, this passage in, a, uh, in other settings is used to exhort people to follow Jesus' example of using Scripture in the face of temptation. So basically, every time I heard this passage, it was, when you face temptation, be like Jesus and quote Scripture. Right? Is that close to what you've heard? So when I say twitch, that's what I mean. Is to be like, well, okay, I'll do that, but the temptation's strong and I'm weak, but okay, that's the best you got. I'll go for it. Now, th- that is a wonderful... I'm not throwing rocks at quoting Scripture. I want it buried into my heart and mind, and I want it buried into my daughter's hearts and minds. And, and it's actually a wise thing to do. It's great to have Scripture coming to mind in the face of temptation. But this passage is not given to us predominantly to have a good example to follow. There's something else happening in this path. There's a deeper point. There's a deeper level of good news of Jesus facing temptation and not succumbing and being 100% obedient, sinless, and righteous. So I'm not saying the thing that made me twitch was wrong. It's actually true. There's just more. And it's the more that I want us to explore. So the way that Luke talks about this temptation, temptation passage is meant intentionally to make us think of previous temptations where people failed. And the two are Adam and Eve and Israel. I mean, just the structure of it, the way it's brought up. So Adam and Eve, you know the story. The main temptation with Adam and Eve was doubting the word of God. Now, did, did God really say? And so the questioning of the word of God, the authority of the word of God. So when Jesus here responds to Satan three times, says, as it is written. So the first temptation is, you know, make some bread out of stones. It is written. Worship me. It is written. Throw yourself off the cliff. It is written. And so Jesus is the example of submitting to uh, the authority of the word, not submitting to in a negative way, not eternal you know, submission stuff, but, but saying that's the word of God, that's the truth, and that's what I'm going to follow. Now, what's fascinating, a little side thing about Satan here is the first temptation, Jesus says, it is written. Second time, it is written. The third time when Satan comes around, he says to Jesus, isn't it written in the Psalms? And he quotes a Psalm and misquotes it. So I just like seeing the strategy of, of Satan there of taking what Jesus actually said, going, oh, I'll take your it is written, and I'll give it back to you, which is the wiles of Satan. But here you have Jesus as the last Adam who finally stands in the place and looks to the Word of God and points to it and says, no, that's actually true. God is faithful, and he's not lying he says this. Let me just trace out the Adam and Eve piece real quick. The fruit of Adam and Eve was Adam was a horrible husband and blamed his wife, and the legacy of his sin was dysfunction in his children. That also happens with another Adam, Noah. The dysfunction of his sons who, in the middle of his nakedness and drunkenness and shame, so there was some drama that took place with Noah's children. Think of another Adam that showed up on the scene to give them hope, Abraham. What did Abraham do with his wife? 
On two occasions, he handed over his wife to a political leader, just like Adam did. It's the woman you gave me, and then Adam, just, Abraham, just like his father Adam, takes the same horrible way of relating to his wife and makes it even worse. Go ahead, take her. She's my sister. And what happened with Abraham and his children? Dysfunction galore with his children, fighting over promises and land. Take it to another Adam, David. How about David and women? He wasn't just the horrible husband who blamed his wife. David was the evil king who took advantage of and misused his power against a woman, Bathsheba. Bathsheba was no, no, no seductress. Um, David actively sinned against her and her husband. And what about David and his legacy and his children? A whole bunch of dysfunction. So every Adam after Adam, every second Adam, third Adam, fourth Adam after Adam, actually the problem got worse with how they related to their wives and their children. Until you get to Jesus Christ, the last Adam, what does he do with his bride? He provides for her. He protects her. He washes her in the word. He purifies her in his blood. What, is, what does his family look like? What do his children look like? First John tells us it looks like love. That the children of Jesus, of God's family, aren't dysfunctional against each other. They're actually different than all of that. They love each other. They lay down their lives for one another. So the legacy of Jesus as the second and last Adam is clear here in the face of temptation. There's another parallel that we want to look at, and that's the parallel of Israel. So Jesus is the last Adam Obviously, we, we know that from reading Romans 5. But when you compare from the first Adam to the last Adam, all of the other Adams, Jesus, with that as the backdrop, stands off in relief. The way he treats his bride and the way he treats his children and the way the children relate to one another is a stark relief. But then Israel. Luke sets this up and says that Jesus was baptized, went across the Jordan to start his ministry, which is exactly what happened with Israel on the way to the promised land. They crossed the Jordan to go off into their promised land. For 40 years, they end up in the wilderness, and Jesus is there for 40 days. It's obviously a clear parallel. But what's really neat is looking at the temptations that Jesus had. Three temptations were actually a way of saying, not just that he was tempted, but they parallel Israel's temptations in the wilderness. Remember Israel with some bread in the desert? and they ended up hoarding the gift of God, the temptation to make some bread out of stones wasn't just, he's hungry. That's the temptation in itself. But the temptation to follow into an inappropriate relationship with bread in the desert, the same way that Israel did. Bow down and worship me. How's Israel doing in their history with idol worship? And then throw yourself off the cliff. That relates to the presumptuousness that Israel had as being the chosen people of God. They would just presume upon being chosen. So Luke is setting this up so we think both of Adam and of Israel. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the new Israel who was faithful to the commands of God. So the story of Jesus' temptation is about his obedience and the way he was obedient was by attending to Scripture and, uh, and, and obeying it. But at every point, he was obedient 
and he was righteous. He loved God with his whole heart. He loved his neighbor as himself. He did not sin in thought, word, or deed by what he did or what he left undone. And so there's no need for the confession of sin that we might have to ever even come off of his lips. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me as we, uh, in the middle of seminary studies and family and all of the other stuff? We know we're justified, right? We know our doctrine of justification. We know that our sins are forgiven and we're declared righteous. And something that our tradition celebrates is that uh, we're not just forgiven of our sins. We're actually declared righteous. Uh, It is our sins are imputed to him as if he was responsible for them. And his righteousness was imputed to us as if we were actually obedient. So we have a full-worked presentation of good news, not just that we go from debt to zero, but that we go from debt of our sins to zero in forgiveness to the inheritance of righteousness because of his obedience. So Luke 4 isn't just a, hey, he's a good example, but his righteousness, that is as if you did that in the face of temptation. Where everyone else has always failed, it is as if you actually succeeded in those moments. So this double exchange is the wonderful news, the great exchange. This is the stuff that we study in systematics and in biblical studies. I saw a picture of this on a flight just a week ago. I was flying uh, in my last leg of a flight, and there was a baby and a mom. The baby was crying. Mom was by herself. And I thought I did a noble thing by helping her carry her bag to the plane. And that was fine. Then I sat down. The baby's in the back crying. And there's a woman had a laptop open in first class. And I saw her turn around, look over her shoulder, kind of look back a few times at the crying baby, and I thought, yeah, I'm annoyed with you. That baby's going to keep me up. But that's not what she was thinking. She closed her laptop, got her bags, walked back to the back of the plane where the mom was with the crying baby, and said, hey, you want to switch seats with me? The woman in first class deserved first class seats. She paid for first class seats. Five times more expensive than what she was going to take. She should have been up there. The woman in the back didn't deserve first class, didn't earn first class, shouldn't have been upgraded because that baby would have annoyed all first class people. And ended up doing this wonderful exchange. She actually sat in economy while the mom with the crying baby got moved up to first class. Now, that's a simple, mundane picture, but it's got a little bit of that pop for us. That's what Christ did. Christ gave up first class and way more for the sake of sitting in economy so we could actually have the imputed righteousness that he actually earned and deserved. What this means for us is that we have new identities in Christ because of his obedience. There are some amazing things that the scriptures say about us. The adjectives that the Bible uses when it refers to us in Christ, are things like this. Perfect, pure, righteous, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. It, we can't, we, if we were to make up our own adjectives, we'd say smart, accomplished. I mean, 
what the Bible says about us is ridiculous and scandalous. What we would make up for ourselves is, you know, nothing compared to what the Bible actually calls us. See, we're going to be marked by one of three things in our life. By what we've done, by what's been done to us, or by what Christ has done for us. Our identity will be founded on one of those three things. By the things that you have done that haunt you. By the things that have been done against you that haunt you. Or by what Christ has done for us. Something's going to be the foundation. And I plead that you would let that be the case. That what Christ has done for you is the foundation for your identity. That you would attend to the active righteousness of Christ. Because the words that are used for you in Christ are staggering. You are in Christ, you are righteous. In Christ, you are perfect and pure. In Christ, you're holy. And the scandal of this is because, just thinking about it this morning, I'm thinking, okay, I, I know what's been done to me. I know what I've done. That's no, those are not the first words that come to mind. When you know that your integrity is up for grabs over a few bucks, when you know what your affections really are, when you know the secrets about you, when you know, the, and that's how the voice of condemnation works, it could be from Satan who wants to condemn the people of God. It could be from other people who know the truth about you, who know the stories, who know where your weaknesses and sins and embarrassment lie. It could come from them, but it also can come from your own conscience which is the most powerful one for me. I can deceive other people. And, you know, the, the lies that are clearly not true from Satan, those are easy. For me, it's the haunt of my own condemnation, of my own voice. Because I look at this and I go, the, the righteousness reminds me, you're not righteous. Holy makes me think, no, I know my un unholy desires and actions and thought, words, and deeds. I don't have to look very far. I can look at how I shame my children very easily. I can look at how I'm annoyed at my wife when I shouldn't be, how I respond to authority. It's, it's always before me. So in the face of that, I want us to hear the shout of the good news of the act of righteousness of Christ. Let me end by making this point using John Bunyan's grace abounding to sinners. He says this, Every little touch of the question, where is your righteousness, would hurt my conscience. But one day, suddenly, I thought of a sentence. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I imagined Christ sitting at God's right hand and suddenly realized, there is my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say, God could not say, where is your righteousness? For it was right before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame of heart make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now my chains fell off indeed. I felt delivered from my slavery to guilt and fears. I went home rejoicing for the love and grace of God. Now I could look from myself to him. And I realized that all those weak character qualities in my heart were like the pennies that rich men carry in their pocket when their gold is safe under lock and key. Christ is my treasure. Christ 
is my righteousness. Now Christ was my wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and salvation. Let's pray. Almighty, holy, gracious, and merciful Father, we thank you for the provision that you have made for us, that you have called us to be adopted into your family. We thank you for the legal, for sure, declaration, but also the familial love that comes from that image. We thank you that your son has washed us, provided for us, and nourished us. We thank you that he treats us differently than all the other Adams. We thank you that we get to be brothers and sisters to one another and not exploit one another. And we thank you for the righteousness that is imputed and declared about us. Please, with your Holy Spirit, work the truth of your word and your promise into our hearts and minds so that that is the foundation that undermines the things that we've done and the things that have been done to us. May your glory be made known to the world because of your good news and the fruit and proclamation that comes from it. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.